Salam dear listeners I most humbly offer my loving pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet and welcome all of you to this week's episode of the Geeta series a trion pilgrimage It's that time of the year and of it happens once in 12 years it's the mahakumbh time where crores and crores of people are taking a dip in the triveni or the confluence of the three most important rivers in India and even as we are speaking about it there are many many people who are in a place called prayagraj where this confluence is happening it's one of the largest events in the world where the gathering is larger than many of the cities in the world and that's the kind of gathering that is happening in the triveni sangam and even as that is happening in one corner of india we are gathered here as always as we do week after week to take a plunge into this triune series where as i said in the beginning this bhagavad gita as swami has so beautifully and clearly explained to us it's not about bhakti it is not about karma it is not about jnana alone because none of us are purely a devotee none of us are absolutely a karma yogi none of us are someone who are attached to the path of jnana completely each one of us need an approach which is a mix of all three some of us need more bhakti some of us need more karma our combinations are different and the percentage of the three may be different but all of us need all three to progress in this path and that's why any discourse which swami gave was covering all of these aspects and even as we go through bhagavad gita we can see when we have we are hardly into just the second chapter we have a long long way to go but already we can see how beautifully these three paths or these three approaches are being synthesized and that's why we've chosen to name this series a triune pilgrimage and a pilgrimage of course because i am not someone who is sitting here and conveying something that i know better than you i am learning as we go past each one of these verses and uh, just as a co-traveler as a co-pilgrim that's how we are journeying through this entire beautiful series So let us express our gratitude to Swami for that, for giving us this opportunity, and of course, my heartfelt gratitude to each one of you. Thanks to your company, I am having this opportunity of going through this. So I am ever, ever grateful to all our listeners for this beautiful opportunity. As always, before we begin this week's episode, we will have a short summary of what we covered last week. Last week we covered three verses: verse number thirty-eight, thirty-nine, and forty of chapter two. As I mentioned last week itself, verse thirty-eight possibly is one of the most quoted verses by Swami, especially the first line of that verse: "Sukhadukhe samekratva labha labhau jaya jayo." So many times Swami has quoted it in his discourses, and the reason for that also is because of what it represents. It represents the quality of samatvam or equanimity, and we discussed how equanimity is almost like a characteristic of. anyone who has attained an advanced stage be it a devotee be it a karma yogi or be it a jnani whichever path one may take whichever combination of the paths one may take a clear sign of progress in the path is this quality of samatvam becoming more and more expressible to us and more and more spontaneous to us right and that is why swami also mentions it so many times and i Uh, had the opportunity to go through where in different occasions where swami has mentioned this as the important thing and even as we going through the bhagavad gita we're going to come across this so many many times and it's a beautiful indicator to all of us because this is a question we always wonder i've been doing sadhana for so many years i've been coming to the sai center for so many years i've been coming to prashant nilayam for so many years 
or people like me, I've been a student and I've been in Prashant Nilayam living for so many years. Am I progressing in this path? Am I making any headway in this journey towards God? A beautiful barometer for ourselves, to judge ourselves, to assess ourselves is this quality of samatvam and equanimity and sometimes it bowls you over how easily you can get disturbed by small, small issues that come across in your life and absolutely telling this from personal experience. You think that you have conquered your mind, you think that you have mastered some of these worries and issues that you have but when something disturbs you, when something disturbs this equilibrium within, that's when you realize that I need to work on myself. Right? So it's a beautiful indicator for oneself as to whether we are progressing on the spiritual path and that is why verse number 38 is very, very important. The other reason why this verse is very important, especially in this juncture, is that it is a very crisp and beautiful and as always a cryptic explanation of the Karma Yoga which Krishna is going to talk about. Why is it? He says that First of all, you make joy and sorrow, loss and profit same. And we explored what it means by making joy and sorrow same. It is not about externally doing that. It is not about removing or reducing the possibilities of losses occurring and possibilities of sorrow occurring. But it is about our mental approach or mental acceptance towards what happens, whether it is joy or sorrow or profit or loss. It is that bridging the gap between depression and elation which we feel depending on what we come across in life. Right, That is the whole point of Krishna saying, make it equal to you, which means make the way you look at it same. And uh, we also spoke about it. It also hints at the only way it can be done is through handling what we refer to as Raga and Dvesha and progressively reducing this. Raga and Dvesha are likes and dislikes. It is not uncommon to have likes and dislikes or it is not uh, criminal to have likes and dislikes. But to be very, very strongly attached to what we like and abhor what we don't like, right? That is what is the most dangerous thing. That strong likes and dislikes is what even in a normal person tends to take them astray. Why do we see so much corruption? Why do we see people lying? Why do we see people becoming violent in trying to be defensive? All of this is because there is something which they don't like and what they don't like, they almost detest and that becomes a problem. So you do whatever it takes to avoid it or you like something so much that the like becomes a lobha or a greed that you don't mind taking to any means to achieve what you have placed your heart upon. And you don't need to look beyond the battlefield because you have the likes of Duryodhana who have typically in that state where their likes have taken them astray and they've gone astray and they are transgressing dharma in the process of trying to achieve what they like and avoid what they don't like, right? So one is dealing with this likes and dislikes and trying to bring about a little bit of equanimity or samatvam is one part of the approach. And the second part of the approach is, of course, continue to do what you're supposed to do, right? In the context of the situation Arjuna is in, Krishna says, you fight the battle for the sake of the battle. But as we said, that's an analogy or that's a representation or indicator of the fact that you have to do what you have to do, right? Develop equanimity and do what you have to do. That's the meaning of verse number 38. Verse number 39, of course, is connecting verse where... Krishna tells Arjuna that till now I explain things through the Sankhya approach or purely an analytical approach. And I explained also Sankhya philosophy is different from a Sankhya approach of argument. Right? Sankhya philosophy is when you start looking at the human experience and the body, the Dehi and death, what happens after death. All of that comes under Sankhya and that is the verses from 12 to 30. Uh, what uh, purely come under Sankhya philosophy but even after 30 till you know about verse number 37 Krishna has been explaining even from the point of view of the ill fame which will come to go Arjuna and what happens when you don't do what you're supposed to do and all of that so that does not come under Sankhya philosophy but the very fact that at 39 Krishna says that till now I taught you from the approach of Sankhya what Krishna is referring to is the analytical approach more than the philosophy of Sankhya. 
philosophy of sankhya also featured in because the analytical approach itself will eventually lead one to sankhya philosophy right so krishna is saying that till now i gave you the analytical approach now i'll tell you about how one develops yoga buddhi right that's the word he uses i will teach you how to develop yoga buddhi and uh, in other words it means the intellect that is required to perform karma yoga so how can we conclude that when krishna says developing of yoga buddhi or buddhir yoga he is referring to karma yoga because he says when you develop this form of approach and then do your actions the sin will not touch you you know when you fight with this in this manner sin will not touch you and i also explained how though krishna is saying sin will not touch you we can say sin and merit will not touch you because when you develop this yoga buddhi and you do it is a means of coming out of action reaction itself and krishna is going to explain that in the verses we are going to go through today even more clearly right so he is going to teach him now a method which is a way of developing a approach to doing action right but maybe we'll not come to those verses this week but that is what is going to follow in the form of karma yoga and then in the verse number 40 he says how this is different from a regular karmic approach or regular activity that you do he says there is absolutely no waste of attempt in this whatever little you do that much you will benefit right because our regular activity that we do in the world is not like that there are some things that have to be completed right there are some things that we labor for years and on one fine day it just comes down right you build an entire mansion for yourself and one earthquake and everything is down right your years of effort has gone down but that is not the case when it comes to this approach to karma that is what krishna says and he says there can be no harm at all because this is a pure approach of doing something there can be no harm there can be no waste of effort and there can be no side effects which will be counterproductive to what you're trying to achieve right so even a little bit of doing this he says will relieve you from great fear and i think that's a very very important thing we will understand what that means because fear is an important quality or important feeling that we are trying to all the time battle and control that's verse number 40 and the verses that we are going to go through today 41 to start with is a continuation of verse number 40 where krishna is still not started speaking about karma yoga but he is speaking of how this form of approach to action is different from the regular actions that we perform in our day to day life so let's go to verse number 41 of chapter 2 as always i'll play it out for you in the voice of brother sham who has rendered it very clearly and beautifully for us and at the end of it i'll give you a brief meaning of that and then we will go deeper into the verse व्यवसायात्मिका बुद्धि एकेहकुरुनंदन बहुशाखाह्यनंताश्च बुद्धयो व्यवसायिनम् ओ सायन ऑफ द कुरु डायनेस्टी इन दिस देयर इज अ सिंगल वन पॉइंटेड कन्विक्शन द थॉट्स ऑफ द इररेसोल्यूट वंस have many branches indeed and are innumerable as you've been following and krishna is tells arjuna that he will teach him buddhir yoga as i just mentioned the analytical explanation or sankhya approach is over the reason why he was saying that till now i taught you sankhya and now i'm going to teach you something different is probably this approach is not so easily available to common thinking if i could put it that way it is not accessible through logic in the simple sense and this is i think a very important point to keep in mind when we talk about basic morality basic discipline in life all of this actually depend on common sense we don't really think of it we don't realize that we leading a disciplined life or we following rules and regulations invariably for our own benefit and the simplest thing is when you're driving a vehicle in, in on a busy road you following the lane disciplines and you stopping when there is a red light or you slowing down when there is a a pin turn coming or whatever it is all of these disciplines that we follow are beneficial to us right 
so in that manner basic morality basic discipline all of these are based on simple logic and common sense for example the most fundamental tenet of morality or ethics is what i don't wish others to do to me i should not be doing to others it's very very simple understanding right we are living in a society we are sharing common space we are sharing common resources so we need some simple logical ways by which we don't step on each other's toes and that's what simple morality and simple rules and regulations in society is all about it is common sensical it's logical what we refer to as sangneeti right so i would often say that papabiti devapriti and sangneeti sangneeti is nothing but when you are in a collection of human beings if simplest way of putting that society right the rules in society are very simple logic let's say that there are 10 people and there is one coffee counter which is dispensing coffee just like the kiosk outside radio sai it makes sense to quickly form a line and go and take your coffee on the first come first served basis right that's the simple way of ensuring that everybody gets their coffee and there is no chaos and in the meanwhile if you find a, a physically challenged person coming or an elderly person coming it makes sense for us to let that person take the, get the preference and get his or her coffee in the beginning and that is also based on the idea that look if i was in that place i would like the people to be more considerate to me right so similarly it goes back to what i do to others is what i would want others to do to me definitely there is the aspect of compassion i'm not taking that away but if you look at it even compassion is based upon empathy right so when you see a person who is disadvantaged you kind of feel that person's pain or feel that person's disability right so what you would want others to do to you if you were disabled in that same manner or you were in a difficult situation like that you go out and do to the other person right so all of these compassion and uh, sympathy all of that is based on the quality of empathy or ability to see the other person's pain as your own so in all of these things if you see rules and laws be it you know somebody's running a business and why do we have so many rules all of these are meant to streamline life and so that you know there is less chaos for me and there is less chaos for the people around too the same thing you consider in a country where there is you know so much inequality right in terms of wealth and power and authority where legally getting something done becomes very very difficult right when there is any kind of inequality that's what happens so in such cases you will see that people try to start taking law in their own hands but the same thing in more advanced and developed countries you do not have the incentive to actually break the law because you can get everything following the law and following the rules and regulations that are laid out in society and people would be happy to follow the disciplines and that's why you would find that the more prosperous the country is the more developed the country is you find that the necessity to take law into your hands becomes lesser and lesser and people are more spontaneously following regulations right they are following righteous living because to follow a righteous and moral living is common sensical right that's the point i'm trying to make so where the situation is not conducive for moral living like in a society where there is inequality then we bring in the concept of merit and sin saying that no no it's not about what actions do you do and what results you get but there are also consequences to your actions which are unseen right that's what we've been telling the adrishtafala of your actions you're not not only the adrishtafala but there is the unseen consequence or adrishtafala which also has to be kept in mind so the concepts of sin and merit and heaven and hell and all of that is brought in so we kind of extend this idea of common sensical rules and regulations and morality into a state where even when there is you don't have the right kind of environment to follow morality how do you ensure that an individual begins uh, continues to follow morality so you bring in all of these concepts so till this explanation you can see that it is purely logical you don't need to have some advanced knowledge or you don't need some brahma vidya to know this this is simple logic and that's how societies have been functioning for centuries together if you look at arjuna himself he himself has been a very good person all this while right he was ambitious and he is ambitious there's no doubt about that but he is still noble and righteous right but to go to the next stage doing good karmas alone being noble alone is not enough 
you have to up the game a little more and that is where karma yoga comes into play right one of the things which we forget is this i heard when someone was giving a beautiful talk on the bhagavad gita he says you know when krishna says karma yoga some people ask can i perform wrong actions or harmful actions and then talk of karma yoga right i'm not interested in the fruits so does that become karma yoga and that person was saying that krishna does not talk about bad actions at all krishna is talking to arjuna and arjuna is a noble person so when krishna is telling arjuna karma yoga he does not even consider the aspect of doing harmful actions or bad actions or selfish actions at all so these are gradations from being a person who is selfish and who not mind doing actions which harm others just because it benefits oneself is the lowest form of living the next higher form of living is one leads a noble life one leads a righteous life one pursues one's ambitions one pursues one's desires but still continues to lead a noble and respectable life and that's what arjuna has been doing but the next level is karma yoga where one has to lift oneself even from the level of nobility so to say just to remind you all we are extensively using the term karma yoga and from our previous reading we know that karma yoga is nothing but doing action without looking at the results but in this point of the bhagavad gita till now krishna has not introduced that terminology nor has he openly spoken about it the only hint was as i just mentioned it is about it is in that uh, verse number 38 when krishna gave a crux of what it is to do karma yoga but the topic and the phrase has still not been introduced so just to keep that in mind coming back to this shloka i think i've taken a long time to come back to the shloka that we are at which is shloka number 41 krishna says kuru nandana sayan of the kuru dynasty again technically speaking arjuna is also a kaurava though we are saying pandavas and kauravas arjuna and his brothers are also kauravas because they also belong to the same kuru dynasty but they get the name pandavas because they are being discriminated against by the kauravas saying that you don't belong to us and also i think clearly they stand out in their nature and their nobility and so they are identified differently from the kauravas so krishna is referring to arjuna as a kaurava he says kuru nandana o sayan of the kuru dynasty iha in this meaning he is still referring to this yoga approach to karma that he is going to teach iha in this buddhihi in the intelligence or discrimination vyavasayatmika the word he is using is vyavasayatmika i'll split it vyavasayatmika and then he says ekaha what is vyavasayatmika there is resoluteness or there is you know you're clear of what you want so he says in this approach or in this mental conditioning the buddhir yoga which is going to teach he is saying vyavasayatmika there is resoluteness and ekaha one pointedness but whereas in the other approach krishna names that person who does regular work and regular karma is being done as a avyavasayinam those who are indiscriminate and irresolute those who are following the normal way of karma are avyavasayinam they are indiscriminate or they are not fixed upon what they want they are not clear of what they want bahu shakha hi anantascha buddhayah their mind is scattered all over the place their mind is after many many things bahu shakha which means it is split into many many things because the mind is running after different different things and anantascha is is after many things and endlessly it keeps running around like this so if i put that simply what krishna is saying is in the path of karma yoga there is one pointedness in approach whereas in regular karma there is a scattering of one's focus what does this mean and how is krishna making this statement and how is he concluding this let us look at how we perform regular actions in day to day life right whether we are noble or we are selfish people or we are corrupt whatever it is how do we go about performing actions how do we go about taking decisions and making choices to do something i should be motivated by something right to act or to not act or to make a choice i should be motivated by something so what motivates regular action 
I either seek pleasure or I am trying to avoid pain. That is the bottom line of any action any of us perform. We are seeking something or we are seeking to avoid something. Raga and Dvesha. We'll come back to that again. But that is what it is. We either want something which we think is going to give us pleasure or we are trying to avoid something which we think is going to give us pain. And depending on my maturity or your maturity, how we seek pleasure and avoid pain varies. That depends on each one's maturity in spiritual progress and maturity in regular thinking too, even commonsensically. If I'm a very, very immature person, I will think only about my immediate benefit. What am I to gain in the next moment? But if I'm a little more mature, like Arjuna is a little more mature, he's thinking about what will people think of me? What will happen to my fame? What will happen to generations to come are going to talk ill of me? He's able to look at the long-term benefit and he's ready to give up something which might be an immediate benefit. Something which Duryodhana is not able to do. Duryodhana is only about how I can enjoy the kingdom now. He's not worried about sin, merit and all of that, right? So, motivation basically is avoid pain, go after pleasure or go after what gives you happiness. The way we categorize things as this as pleasure and this as pain varies with each one's maturity level, right? The very fact that uh, Arjuna is at a level which is higher is also a sign that he's, he's more mature and Krishna is talking to him about karma yoga because He's ready for that, right? He's ready to receive that knowledge. One more point to keep in mind is when I say we are constantly seeking pleasure and trying to avoid pain, when I say pleasure, it is not only about sensual pleasure, it is not only about the bottommost rung of what we refer to as pleasures in life. Pleasure means what gives me pleasure. It could be happiness, it could be bliss. As I said, it could be kirti and good name in, in the case of Arjuna. So anything that gives me any form of happiness, it could even mean self-satisfaction and peace, right? So I'll just make that clear. So we are trying to avoid pain, we are going after pleasure. Now, what is the problem with this approach? Because Krishna is saying that this is not a good approach. What is the problem with this approach? We have no idea where happiness lies and where that could be a pitfall. Even as we are going through life, this is the most biggest problem that we face. We don't know which choice to make because we are not sure where we'll find happiness and where we are going to find a stumbling block. Starting from the smallest of things, which school do I put my child in or which course do I take? Do I take up engineering? Do I take up medicine? Do I take up science or commerce or MBA or MCA? Why are we so indecisive because we are not sure which decision or which stream or taking to which path is actually going to give me pain or which path I can avoid the pain. In fact, even more than we seeking pleasure, I think we are obsessed with this desire to avoid pain, right? That is what is biggest in our mind. And that fear, right? That is why I said when Krishna said by doing this, even to a small extent, a great amount of fear will be removed. Because fear plays a very, very important part in our life. We are always scared, right? There are mother and father who want to look for a bridegroom for their daughter or what is the best school to put my child in. Why are they so scared of that? Because all the time we're worried if my decision will lead to pain in any form or failure in any form. We are always worried about that, right? And in fact, a good majority of us turn to Swami purely for helping us in this decision making, isn't it? Because we are always worried that we'll make a wrong decision and we know that, you know, Swami can see more than I can see and Swami is wiser and I can just relegate this decision making to Swami, right? Because we are constantly fearful of what would happen if I take the wrong turn. When we perform actions motivated by pleasures, we become very, very indecisive because of this, because we don't know where to avoid pain and where to find pleasure. But not that we are completely bogged down by this, right? Though I'm saying this, it, it doesn't mean that we are constantly indecisive about everything. In fact, if we just cannot make decisions because of this confusion, it gets categorized as a mental disorder. In fact, I managed to Google and find out that term. There's a mental disorder called baulomania, A-B-O-U-L-O-M-A-N-I-A. Right? That's a term which is given, a baulomania, 
because the person becomes so indecisive that he or she is not able to make any decision because they constantly look at you know two options in front of them okay if i do this this will happen and then that will be the consequence and then this will lead to that and if i do this these will be the consequences these are the pitfalls in this these are the pitfalls in this these are the benefits here so much of data to process even for a simple decision actually they start displaying signs of anxiety and depression even when they have to make small decisions but none of us are in that stage right most of us go ahead and make decisions in everyday in our life in fact if you look at someone who is very very decisive you would find like that people in our workplace or even in our families who are able to just come in and make a decision if you look at them not always they are sure of what will happen most of the people who are very decisive like that will say that you know let's go with this if there's a problem we'll face it if there are issues which come after that we'll deal with that right if you find uh, bosses who are very decisive this is what they'll do like let's take a quick decision let's do it if there are problems on the way you know we'll cross the bridge when it comes right so in a sense if we are able to remove the fear of pitfalls from our mind the more easy our decision making is going to be right and that is precisely what krishna said in shloka number 38 he said sukha dukhe samekritwa labha labho jaya jaya the more you are able to bridge this gap between pain and pleasure victory and loss and uh, happiness and sorrow right the more you are able to bridge that your ability to become more decisive becomes easier and that's precisely what krishna is telling here and krishna told that that equanimity is one of the signs or one half of this karma yoga right so automatically when you start even in simple life when we are able to get a little bit of control over the fear of failure we become much much more clearer in our decision making so one of the qualities of this approach to doing our actions is evening out to an extent difference between pain and pleasure victory and failure that we have dealt with already so what becomes the motive of karma yoga then for regular karma we said the motive is to avoid pain and to go after pleasure what is the motive when it comes to karma yoga then what drives the actions the motivation is moksha or the ultimate knowledge which leads to moksha this might appear like a how many of us are really motivated by moksha i don't know if i can categorically and confidently say that i'm after moksha right that desire for moksha itself comes much much later in most of our lives what we refer to as mumukshatvam right the desire for moksha that quality itself is a blessing and is a act of grace is what some of the uh, scriptures say so when we say that the desire is moksha we need not necessarily know that that is the ultimate or understand completely what moksha is the very idea that i know that whatever i'm doing in this world is binding whatever actions that i'm doing is giving me only limited happiness or that happiness comes with a caveat when we start understanding this the mind starts craving for something higher the mind starts craving to understand the purpose of all of this and that itself is a sign that you are looking at a knowledge which is beyond that and once the mind starts focusing towards the higher knowledge of life or for lack of a better word let's use the word moksha itself then the person will automatically start performing karma as karma yoga right and when the mind is focused on something which is more superior all of these things will automatically fall into place sukha dukhe samekritva will happen that equanimity will begin happening because you are no more looking at the benefits that will come from actions that you are doing now and automatically as krishna explained that doing your duty will give you merit but if there is a duty that has to be done and you don't turn up to do that if you are doing akarma where you're supposed to be doing karma if you're inactive when you're supposed to be active that also is a form of a sin so a person who is trying to attain release from action and reaction will say that no i have to still do my duty because if i don't do my duty i'm still going to be pulled back into this action reaction cycle so a person who has his or her eye fixed on moksha or liberation or that complete freedom 
will automatically first of all have this evening out of pain and pleasure happiness and sorrow victory and loss and will also start doing duty more diligently and how will they do their duty they will say that this duty has to be done so i will do it and that will also lead to as krishna said vyavasayatmika buddhir ekaha resolute one pointed intellect because now there is a task in front of me i only have to perform this task to the best of my ability i am not worried about the pleasure or the pain which is going to come out as i said as long as that is the motive we become indecisive now that has not become the motive so i have become more decisive i know what i am supposed to do i do it and i keep going but my mind is all the time resolute and is fixed upon the goal and this is what swami would often say i think swami would quote uh, these lines and say that these are the words of alexander the great he would say be clear and the rest will follow and he would say that you know we are constantly running after so many things swami would say that if you are clear of what life is what is life's purpose and what one is supposed to do everything else will follow what you have to get what you need in life all of that will follow so it is as students and i think the first time i heard this from swami was during one of the summer course discourses swami said when you are a student learn to master the art of becoming clear in thinking because once that is done everything else is going to follow be clear and rest will follow and that is precisely what krishna is telling here that when your focus is on not pleasure and pain raga and dvesha but your focus is on the ultimate jnana or the ultimate release from the cycle of action and reaction then automatically you will find that your decisiveness becomes more clear your resolution becomes more clear your one pointedness becomes more stronger and you will also start doing duty for duty's sake so that's the verse number 41 verses 42 and 43 can be combined but what i'll do is i'll play 42 i'll give you the meaning for 42 then i'll play out verse number 43 i'll give you the meaning for 43 and we'll discuss both of these verses together i think that we would have enough time to do that and we'll probably uh, conclude today's episode with these two verses So first verse number 42 and after that I'll give you the meaning of that verse Yami mam pushpitam vacham pravadantya vipaschitah vedavadaratah partha nanyadastiti vadinah Flowery speech is uttered by the unwise taking pleasure in eulogizing words of the vedas o arjuna saying there is nothing else we listen to verse number 43 i'll give you the meaning of that and then we'll discuss kamatmanasvarga para janma karma phala pradam kriya vishesha bahulam full of desires having heaven as their goal the utter speech which is directed to ends leading to new births as the result of their works and prescribe various methods abounding in specific actions for the attainment of pleasure and power well those are verses 42 and 43 i don't know how much could have been conveyed with that meaning we will go into the detailed meaning of the two verses but before that we made a clear distinction in the previous verse that ordinary karma is doing actions with pleasures and pain in mind and karma yoga is primarily a means after one has set their eye upon the ultimate freedom or moksha right if you look at the karma yoga path itself when one starts doing karma yoga eventually one will attain moksha if one has their eye fixed on moksha then one will automatically start doing karma yoga right that's what we had derived from that previous verse and also if you look at from the point of view of jnana right when you talk of attaining that knowledge or that wisdom which is going to give us release from this worldly existence karma yoga is also a means by which the mind is purified and made ready to receive that jnana and that will be explained in this two particular verses as we go through 
But for now, that is something that we have to keep in mind that to receive that jnana, we have to purify this mind. And that is why Swami would always say that doing one's duty is one of the best ways for developing chitta shuddhi or purity of the mind. Constantly doing one's duty and that itself will purify your mind. And when you have many, many lifetimes go in just performing one's duty, eventually, you know, the mind becomes matured enough and one starts doing karma yoga, one starts more spontaneously doing karma yoga and gets ready to receive that jnana, right? But between the desire for pleasure and the desire for moksha, there are many, many levels. Maybe before I explain that, just one point, when we say desire for moksha or mumukshatvam, it is not similar to other desires in that sense. It is just a state where our focus is on the ultimate. It is not as much a craving, though we are telling desire for moksha. So I would say dharma, artha, kama and moksha. Kama should turn towards moksha. But when we say mumukshatvam, it is not the kind of a craving, just like how craving for sense pleasures are there. It is not in that sense. It is just a state where our focus is on the ultimate. If I start thinking of moksha or the ultimate wisdom as a possession, the moment I say that I want moksha because you don't have, she doesn't have, my mother and father don't have and I want moksha, you are only turning it into another objective possession, right? Something if I have, I'll have a little higher status among the people whom I move about with. That becomes a desire. That is not mumukshatva, right? That is the distinction I'm trying to make. When I say desire for moksha, it is not necessarily mumukshatva. You should not think of the ultimate knowledge as a possession which I will have, which I can flaunt around, right? You clearly say that I don't want to be caught up in the trappings that come with attainments and achievements in the world. I want something higher, right? So it is not craving at all. It is clear idea that I'm not interested in all of these worldly fame and all of that. I want something higher. So when we say karma yoga is action inspired by desire for moksha, we mean what Krishna explained as vyavasayatmika buddhi or resolute focus that takes one's eye away from the mundane. So in these two shlokas, Krishna speaks of those between the lowest form of worldliness and the highest desire or mumukshatvam. This actually is a dangerous group to be in. Most of us may not be able to directly relate to this, but this same nature that Krishna is explaining here, we will see prevalent in the modern times in a different form. Because what Krishna is referring to is, in a sense, specific to the times that Krishna is making this statement about. Krishna says, Yam imam, this kind of pushpitam vacham, Pravadanti, flowery words are spoken, right? Pushpitam vacham, flowery words. Honestly, I didn't realize that this usage, flowery words, was so ancient. It, you know, it appears like a more recent language development which has come. But even in the Bhagavad Gita, it says flowery words. He says such flowery words are spoken, but what kind of flowery words and who utters them? Krishna explains, avipaschitaha, the unwise, avipaschitaha. This is a very, very nice word that Krishna is using. Vipaschitaha means wise. Avipaschitaha means unwise. If you look at the root word of this complex word which Krishna is using, Pashyati means to see. Right? So from that, if you see, Vipaschitaha means one who can see clearly or one who has clarity of vision. And that person is wise. Avipaschitaha, when we say is an unwise person, those that are not able to see clearly or those who are not able to see the complete picture are called unwise. Right? It almost suggests that they are seeing, but they are not seeing completely. Paschanapina Paschat Swami would say, Mudho, Mudho. One who is seeing but is not able to see completely or who is not seeing in a subtle manner or in a deep sense. And then he says, Veda Vada Rataha. Those who are lost in the technicalities of the Vedas. Veda Vada Rataha. Yeah, there's a context to what Krishna is saying. As I said, this particular explanation which Krishna is giving has a connection with the times in which Krishna is delivering this Bhagavad Gita. Today we speak of atheists who don't believe in God, 
they don't believe in religion sin and merit they're not necessarily bad people right they say that we will lead a good life we will lead a noble life we will not harm anybody we will live and let live but we don't believe in all of these things they are one category of people in the earlier eras too especially in the dwapara yuga where we're talking about we had people like this and they were called nastikas nastikas are those who did not believe in the authority of the vedas but when krishna says vedavada rataha these are people who believe in the vedas who are using the knowledge of the vedas but they are avipaschitaha they do not see the entire picture which the veda is trying to convey so in the past there were these astikas or believers in the vedas who would get endlessly engrossed in what we refer to as the rituals and rites or what is more clearly spoken of as the karma kanda in the vedas i probably will not have enough time to go through and explain what the karma kandas are but typically the veda is divided into different sections where the karma kandas are those verses and chants and mantras which primarily deal with what are the rituals and yagnas and yagas and sacrifices that one can do to attain or achieve different things right they're very very important and very voluminous part of the vedas but still they are only the karma kandas so there are karma kandas and if i'm right there is upasana kanda and there is jnana kanda right so the veda itself not only speaks about rites and rituals but it also speaks about how to worship right rituals is different from worshiping right it says the karma kanda the upasana kanda and it speaks about the jnana kanda or the section where we speak about the real wisdom so when krishna is saying here vedavada rataha they are believers in the vedas but they are lost in the lower aspects of the vedas or the discussions about the rites and rituals what we refer to as the karma kanda of the vedas and these can be probably called as the ritualists so these ritualists you know they are extensively have this idea of you know if you do this you can achieve this in fact uh, there are some of the suktams if you go and if you look at them they're very very interesting if you see the falashruti of chanting this for so many times they'll say that you'll have hundreds of horses you'll have so many cows and you know you'll have so many children there are some uh, verses which say that if you chant this regularly then you will not have any enemies or if you have enemies you will find that they become submissive to you the different different rites and rituals and yagnas and yagas i think some of these are still prevalent in many parts of india right so where you can do something to achieve something if you look at it it is very similar to what we do in regular life right if i want to earn a certain amount of money or if i want to make a certain profit there are certain things that i have to do similarly even when you're talking about the vedas there are some things where if you do this vratam if you do this yagna if you do the sacrifice you can attain some of these so those rituals themselves are not wrong necessarily but these are only a form of discipline if you look at it in that sense but what is wrong is when they become anyat na asti iti vadinaha krishna says anyat iti na asti vadinaha those that argue that there is nothing more than this to the vedas that is when they become a problem following rituals is not a problem doing yagnas and yagas are not a problem but when they say the entire body of the vedas is only about this then they become dangerous people right so when we say vedas what is the equivalent to that in the modern context right because as i said this is specifically for the context in which krishna is speaking because one of the things which the bhagavad gita looks at is the revival of the right understanding of the vedas right and uh, swami has also said this many times and even in the bhagavad gita krishna will make that categorically clear that is one of the purposes for an avatar to take place that he puts in context the eternal wisdom when you talk about the vedas and vedanta they are supposed to be the eternal wisdom come from time to time but with age burden that they kind of collect over the period of time and one of the things which invariably tends to happen is this where you think that the idea of the vedas is to do yagnas and yagas and you get too engrossed in that where krishna comes and says that you know this is the context and you would see that constantly happening even in swami's life it is not that swami did not encourage rituals 
It is not that Swami did not do yagas and yagnas. But on many occasions where something has outlived its purpose or something is not conveying the essence of what is being done, Swami would say, no, this can be dropped. You know, you don't have to follow this. So many of the things we can see, restrictions which are caste specific, Swami has said that, you know, you can do away with that. Restrictions that are gender specific, Swami says, no, they do not apply to this particular yuga. So one of the things an avatar or avatar purushar comes to do is this, to weed out all of these problems of getting too focused on ritualistic part of some of these things, right? What I was telling is, how do we look at it from a modern context and how do we relate to this? When we say Vedas, what is the equivalent to that in the modern context? The idea of Veda itself is a pramana. When you say pramana, it's a means of knowledge, right? It is not an end in itself. The knowledge has to be gained by the individual and it is a body of work that is extremely exhaustive, but it is only a means for that knowledge. It only gives you the basis for righteous living and the tools for achieving knowledge which is beyond this life. But its greatest gift is the ultimate wisdom which can completely release you from action and reaction cycle, right? So that is what the Vedas are. Once in Radio Sai, I think we were speaking to this uh, Ayurvedic scholar and he was telling us that if you go into the original Ayurveda and what are the solutions that it has for the health problems, he was saying that if you follow strictly some of the regimens that they've given, even if you're not well, without any effort, a person can live till 100 and 120 years or so without facing any kind of health problems throughout that period, right? And he said it's very, very simple. I mean, it's not at all very different. There's some very simple things to be followed and you don't have to worry about health at all. And even if you happen to contract some kind of disease, there are means by which it can be solved with least effort. And when he was explaining all of this, he said, see, to take care of the body, the Vedas have given you the means to do that and they've given it so easily that you don't even have to worry about it. You don't have to spend too much time about it. And he said, why has the Vedas given you this so very easily and readily? The idea is, look, this body is meant for a purpose and we will teach you a means of maintaining that body. You don't worry about it, don't spend time on it. You only worry about what is the purpose for which this body is given. He said that is the concept of the Ayurvedic approach to life. That good health can be easily got by following a certain regimen so that thereafter the individual can concentrate on what is the purpose of the human birth. And that is what is with everything. That is what has happened with what we today call yoga, not the yoga which Krishna is talking about, what we refer to as yoga or yogasanas. Right? The whole of Patanjali's yogasana, if you look at it, in the eighth stage process which Patanjali talks about, the asana and pranayama are just two. And those are meant to take care of your physical body so that you can concentrate on higher things and go up till samadhi. But today you find that yoga itself, the aspect of taking care of the body itself has become like yoga. right? The same thing is happening is what Krishna is talking about. Karmakanda is there in the Vedas and there is a certain benefit for that. Following these rituals and rites and sacrifices and yagnas and yagas has a certain purpose and that is so that your immediate needs or the worldly needs can be taken care of and then the Veda also speaks about the higher things in life, right? But those who get lost in just these low things, they are the people who are following just the karma marga, right? Not the karma yoga, but constantly getting caught up in doing things for some benefit in mind, right? Anyat na asti, there is nothing more than this. People who claim this, they are the people who are lost. And such people are kamatmanaha, individuals who are filled with desires. Swargapara means those who believe that heaven is the highest, those who desire for heaven. Janma karma falapradam, who think all that we do is so that the karma phala or the consequences of our actions will lead to a good birth next time. Kriya vishesha bahulam. Vishesha kriya means specific rituals for specific benefits, right? As I just explained. Kriya vishesha bahulam, one who practices different rituals for gaining different things and different purposes. So in the context of the Gita or the time of the opera, Krishna is speaking about the ritualists 
Again, practicing rituals is not wrong per se, but using the Vedas only for figuring out how I can seek pleasure and avoid pain will make you get lost in it. And as Krishna says, it will diversify one's focus and it will make one indecisive. And in all this, he says, Bhogaishwarya Gatim Prati. It is done for the sake of Bhoga, sense enjoyment, Aishwarya for opulence and Gatim or worldly progress. I think before I speak anything more, I'll probably give you a summary meaning of the two verses because in all this it matter, it must have got lost a little. I'll just give you the summary of the meaning of 42 and 43. We'll just take a few minutes after that before we conclude. So the meaning of that, those two verses are, O Partha, those people of poor wisdom and unclear vision who utter this flowery talk which promises birth or good birth as a result of rights and duties and is full of various special rights meant for the attainment of joy, affluence and worldly progress, they remain engrossed in the utterances of the Vedas and declare that nothing else exists. Their minds are full of desires and they have heaven as the goal. So that is the meaning of the two verses. Let us see if this has any direct relevance to our own lives. If you were to just keep aside the idea of heaven and hell, right? Because clearly Krishna is saying that you don't do yagnas and yagas only for benefits within the world or within this lifetime, but you also think that, oh, if I do this, I will get heaven. And Swami has very, very clearly said the idea of heaven and hell in Sanatan Dharma is very different. Swami would very beautifully say it is like getting elected to the parliament. You can stay there for five years and then you have to come away from there. Heaven is also like that. If you've done good actions through your life, for a brief time you're allowed to enjoy in heaven or if you've done wrong things, for a brief time you suffer in hell and then you come back to another birth, right? So Swami would say that even that is not the end. And that is why Krishna is saying that either doing it for pleasures, bhoga ishwarya gatim, pleasures and progress in this world or with the idea that this is going to give me heaven or with the idea that this is going to give me a better human birth next time. All of these are ways by which you are doing actions purely motivated by Raga and Dvesha. Now, how can we relate to this in the modern context? Swami would always say this, you know, education must always be for life and not for a living. Most of you must have heard this. Does education provide a living? Yes, of course, education does provide a living. You have a good degree, you get a good job, you get a good job, you have a comfortable life, respect in society, etc., etc. You got all of that. But the process of education is meant for something more than just that. It is meant to prepare the mind and broaden the heart. Right? This is something we've heard from Swami so many times. So how can one ensure that one does not get caught up in the flowery intricacies of worldly benefits and attainments that come with learning? Right? That's the question. Our focus must always be on something higher rather than on what we can gain. So even when we look at this tool of education, it can be completely related to what Krishna is telling about what people who have desires in their mind do with the Vedas. They only take the Karmakanda, they only talk about the benefits which the Vedas can give and they get lost in that. The same thing we are doing with education or any other form of empowerment that we have in day-to-day life. We get lost with what it can give in this immediate life itself and we forget the larger purpose of that particular tool. Swami would often say this very beautiful uh, in a Telugu verse. He would say, Yamuna sukimpa hema taraka vidya, paramuna sukimpa brahma vidya. If all your goal is only to avoid pain and go after pleasure, in other words, be constantly guided by raga and dvesha, then secular knowledge is good enough. Because, Yamuna sukimpa hema taraka vidya. To find pleasure and happiness in this particular world and in this particular life, Hematarakavidya or secular learning is good enough. The same way superficial knowledge of the Vedas are good enough to get that kind of benefit. But if you want supreme happiness, Paramuna Sukimpa Brahmavidya. If you want supreme happiness that cannot be taken away by the irregularities of lives or the ups and downs of life, if you want that happiness which is supreme, then your mind has to be focused on Brahmavidya. So coming back to the description that Krishna has been giving all through these 
Raga and Dwesha are the main culprits. I like something, I don't like something or I like something so much, I kind of detest something so much. These are the main culprits. Until these are removed, there will be desire for something or the other. If not silly pleasures, you will have desire for grander achievements. If not for grand worldly achievements, you will be desiring for heaven and hell or better birth. Like that's what Krishna has been explaining. So this Raga and Dvesha must be controlled and for that one has to strive for equanimity and in this process to do work or do, to do karma with a certain mentality helps a lot. So you can see that there is nothing like you do this and then that will follow and then you will get that. All of these are interconnected. To have a focus on higher things, to develop equanimity, to continue to do duty for duty's sake. These are like, you know, three things which are going to work hand in hand and help us in this progress which Krishna is talking about. Sorry, I took a little extra time and I think we'll conclude with that. We'll continue with this chapter 2 next week. Do join me again next week and we'll continue with this the Gita series, The Triune Pilgrimage. I'll meet you all again. Till then, farewell and happy listening.